we are so happy you've decided to join us as we get into scripture once again, as we continue our studies on the topic of rest. And as we do every week before we start our conversation, we ought to invite God to be our prime guest and the protagonist of our discussion. So can I invite you as you view to simply pause for a moment, close your eyes, bow your heads and pray with me. Father, we are glad at the prospect of understanding that rest is a gift. It's a gift given by you. But Lord, as we think about the bodily rest that we so desperately crave, we would also ask for relational rest. Uh, there are people that represent toxicity in our lives. There are people that would rob us of our peace, of calmness, of the capacity to reflect and for introspection, Lord, we pray. We pray that you allow us to continue loving those people even as you give us the ability to create and promote healthy boundaries. We pray that you remain in our lives and in the midst of our conversation, for we do so. In the name of your son, Jesus. Amen. Sibling rivalries. Sibling, sibling rivalries are part of every ancient civilization's mythology. They are prodded around in Hollywood as the theme to most movies. There's something about family dynamics that happens when siblings meet and clash and collide. Whether it's Cain and Abel, Dumuzi and Enkidu, or my brother and I. My brother and I. So my brother is younger than I am. He's four years younger. And when we were growing up, we were fierce rivals. Fierce rivals on the soccer field. Um, we used to play very similar positions. And so every time as we met on the pitch, undoubtedly we would have these moments where we saw each other face to face. We competed harder in those matches than in any other match because the result of those games meant bragging rights. It meant that for the rest of the season, no matter how things went, we could constantly remind each other, I won, I bested you. Now, when understood properly and when monitored carefully, sibling rivalries can invite us to become better. They can push us to achieve levels of excellence that we never thought possible. The problem is too often these rivalries descend. They descend into toxic outbursts. I'm sure we've all experienced it. The conversation around a dinner table that centers around different political views. The moment when one of the siblings decides to engage in a relationship with a significant other that the rest of the family doesn't approve of, a career path that we don't see eye to eye, financial decisions that we don't quite agree with. And then the tensions begin to boil over and instead of reminding ourselves of the blood ties that we possess, we descend, we descend into name-calling and dehumanizing behavior. We know each other intimately. Siblings know their fights and their problems. We know our weaknesses, and so we tend to attack with ferociousness that is only reserved to those who form part of our inner circle. Mm -hmm. I find that the gravest damage of them all is typically done by people who love you. They love you because at some point in your life, you have given yourself over to them in vulnerability. And it's really tragic, isn't it, when that vulnerability is then exploited in order to harm and to hurt you. The fact that the Bible 
is a book that's primarily about relationships as we talk about this concept of rest this quarter ought to point us to the realization that the Bible is not Pollyannish about the pitfalls of intrafamily discord. Take the story of the last patriarch as a case in point. Joseph is a seminal figure in the narrative of the Old Testament. After all, it is Joseph that represents the link from Israel as a patriarchal state to Israel as a people. Joseph is the link between promise and fulfillment. He is the one that connects the idea, the, dr the faint dream of a land where we can be fruitful and multiply in the realization of Canaan. Joseph stands head and shoulders above most characters because of the length that the author of Genesis decides to give to his narrative in the Toledot. And yet what I find interesting is that in this particular narrative, as Joseph struggles constantly through his life to find a place of rest, his story is besieged time and time again by discord and intrafamily dispute. So if you have a Bible, I want you to come with me. And we're going to read today two chapters, two chapters at the end of the book of Genesis, that relate to this. Now, just so that you remember, this whole quarter, as we have been doing, we're going to talk about rest. We've discussed throughout our time here together that rest isn't merely the cessation of work. Rest is the experience of safety. My kids came to bed just last night. They woke up in a panic, and both of them snuggled close to us and said, Daddy, we had nightmares. Linda and I looked at these faces that we knew so well, and their eyes wide with fear, we said, okay, come on in. No sooner had their head hit the pillow that they were fast asleep. Now, Linda and I, it was quite a different story. We tossed and turned the whole night as we attempted to manage to fit in our bed. But my boys, oh, my boys rested. They rested well because they felt safe. The Bible is trying to give us an example of a family nucleus that provides safety so that rest is experienced. Yet too often, our familiar relationships are marred by discord. Genesis 37, Joseph, verse 2, a young man of 17 was tending the flocks with his brothers, the sons of Bilhah and the sons of Silpah, his father's wife, and he brought their father a bad report from them. And so at the very beginning of this Joseph story, you see something. You see that there is a difference already marked in the family. Now, this difference has to do with the blood relationships. Joseph, after all, is his brother's half-sibling. But those, relations, those differences that siblings experience need not only to reflect the familiar, familiar ties that we wish were stronger, there are also differences of ideologies, difference of approach, of character, of temperament. The first step, in developing a family life that allows for rest instead of anxiety is to stop pretending that the differences aren't there. Parents, we know this well. We don't attempt to parent our children in the same way. We customize our parenting thoughtfully because we recognize that children have differences. Too often, for the sake of peace and quiet, we we seek to nullify the differences. We seek to remain blissfully ignorant of the differences. The book of Genesis begins by recognizing those differences. Now, Israel loved Joseph more than any other son because he had been born to him in his old age. So here's what's interesting. What is interesting is that within this family dynamic, not only are the differences readily recognized, but those differences are used 
to define privilege. I have two boys. One of them, and I won't say which one, is much more similar in temperament to me. Thus, our relationship is quite different. We find these connections and conversations much easier. We have the same interests. But as a father, I need to be always intentional of recognizing that differences should never be exploited as a privilege, as a way of feeding into familiar discord. Rather, differences are to be discussed and recognized. Israel, the father of the great nation, well, instead of fanning the flames of love and compassion, instead of creating a safety net and a place of rest for Joseph, has created an environment that is full of pitfalls. So Joseph has a dream. Joseph had a dream, it says, verse 5. And when he told it to his brothers, they hated him all the more. He said to them, listen to this dream I had. We were binding sheaves of grain in the field when suddenly my sheaf rose and stood upright while your sheaves gathered down, mine and bowed down to it. His brother said to him, do you intend to reign over us? And they hated him all the more because of his dream and what he said. And the interesting thing is that this particular construction, in the original language, what Joseph is saying is the same construction that, is, that will be used later on in the, in the Old Testament to refer to the messages of the prophets. And so Joseph comes with this dream, he speaks it out, and his brothers hate him, not only for the dream, but because of what he said. Yet this dream that Joseph has, it's impossible for him to keep quiet about. The dream must be spoken, much in the same way that the prophets must deliver prophecies later on that will cause Israel to hate them. This explains what is to follow in the text. Notice, I want you to read very carefully what we find here in verse 9. Then he had another dream, and he said to his brothers, Listen, I had another dream, and this time the sun and the moon and eleven stars were bowing down to me. And if you're even a cursory reader of Scripture, you're probably asking yourself this question. Joseph, is your, if your first dream didn't go down well, why tell your second dream? Why must you continue with it? And it's because even when Joseph doesn't recognize it, there's these aspirations, these, this mission, this dream that God has placed upon his heart that he cannot keep quiet about. Listen to, I, to Israel's response in the second half of verse 10. Maybe it'll help illustrate the point a bit. What is this dream you had? Will your mother and I and your brothers actually come down and bow to you? His brothers were jealous of him. But his father kept the matter in mind. And so here's what's happened. Israel understands. He understands what he has been called to. He understands the family business, the lineage. He knows that God has promised to his grandfather that they will be the forebearers of a great nation. He knows the mission. He knows the purpose. He's a man also that understands destiny, divine destiny. For it was God that called Abraham out of Ur the Chaldees. It was God that placed Rebekah at the well so that Abraham's servant might bring her back to marry Isaac. It was God who blessed Jacob while he was working for Laban. Israel knows well about divine destiny. And so rather than belittle the dream, he understands that sometimes our dreams, our dreams are the pathway to divine destiny. Now, when I was younger, I would read the story and I would read it as a prime example of hubris, hubris on the part of Joseph. And then I realized. I realize that when my son comes up to me and says that he wants to be America's first Hispanic president, 
that when my other boy says that he wants to cure cancer, that when my smallest boy says that he wants to be a cowboy, my job, my job isn't to deny or defy those dreams. My job is to feed into them. You know, families are, ought to be places in which dreams can receive affirmation. I think it would have been different. I think it would have been different if at that moment, instead of Israel merely filing the matter in mind, he would have said, Joseph, that doesn't shock me. We serve a God who places upon the heart of the most unlikely characters divine dreams and designs. After all, wasn't that the whole history of, of Scripture? Wasn't that what God did from the beginning, used the most unlikely source to have His will fulfilled? But because, because Israel was too afraid of entering into the familiar conflict that we so often are resident, reticent to engage upon, he stood quiet. That's why we began by saying that sometimes the differences need to be embraced. Sometimes conflict needs to be explored. Sometimes we need to converse about the hurts and the misunderstandings that we have in the family. Sometimes we need to do that less, well, less these emotions fester. You know the rest of the story. Joseph once again comes down to meet his siblings. He comes down bearing them food, and instead of that, they place him in a pit. He is sold into slavery and moves over to Egypt. And in Egypt, Joseph once again will ascend to the peak. You see, if we hold on to these divine designs, if we remain stubborn in our dreams, our God's dreams for us will be fulfilled. But how interesting is it? That after Joseph has all this experience with a family that is dysfunctional, he moves into a home that is also marred by dysfunction. Now he goes into Potiphar's house, right? And in Genesis 39, it tells us that, well, that God blesses Joseph, much in the same way that God blessed his father. And so Potiphar's wife... Well, Potiphar's wife begins to look at him. And verse 6 in uh, chapter 39 tells us that Joseph was well-built and handsome. And after a while, his master's wife took notice of Joseph and said, Come lie with me. But he refused. And notice how he refuses. He says, With me in charge, my master does not concern himself with anything in the house. Everything he owns he has entrusted to my care. No one is greater in his house than I am. My master has withheld nothing from me except you because you are his wife. How then could I do such a wicked thing against God? And though she spoke to Joseph day after day, he refused to lie with her or even be with her. Now, the old sages in the Talmud, interpret this story and give it a new nuance that I hadn't thought about it. Notice that the rationale that God, that Joseph gives for not committing adultery, for not engaging in this act, isn't that he will sin against Potiphar, it's that he, the sin will be committed against God. Well, it's interesting, isn't it? Because Potiphar and his wife don't know anything about the God of his, father, of his fathers. But Joseph remembers. Joseph remembers that he has been called for a specific purpose. Joseph remembers the divine design. Joseph remembers his fate. Joseph remembers that the future of his family hinges upon him. Joseph is now invested in providing a space of rest for those who have sold them. How can I commit the sin against my God? But then something interesting happens. Did you catch it? The Bible says that Joseph refuses even to be with Potiphar's wife until one day, one day he goes into the house to attend his duties. And none of the servants were inside. 
Again, those old rabbis in their expose on the Talmud say that perhaps Joseph at this moment begins to falter. Perhaps he begins to doubt. Perhaps he says, I've given so much. I've suffered so much. Rest seems to evade me. Maybe, may, just maybe I can lay aside God's divine design for me. Maybe I can exchange the dreams that God has for me for my own dreams. After all, God's dreams are taking too long to be fulfilled. That really echoes with me. In our society, our society that's all about instant gratification and quick fixes, Joseph goes into the house and there is no one there. Well, how is that possible? How is it possible then in a house as wealthy as Potiphar's, the captain of the guard, there are no servants or soldiers in the house? Well, the, the writers of the Talmud say that Joseph is going intentionally into the house because he knows, he knows that maybe the time has come to exchange one dream for another. Potiphar's wife caught, caught him by the cloak and said, come to bed with me. But Joseph left his cloak in her hand and ran out of her house. And the word that is used in the original Hebrew to define this encounter is the same root that is used throughout the Old Testament to, for marital infidelity. Joseph is moving closer to the edge of the precipice. He removes his coat. And those same rabbis, those same rabbis gives, give us an extra biblical, biblical reason that causes Joseph to turn and run. And that is that in that moment, in that final moment of decision, Joseph catches a glimpse, a glimpse of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And he hears the words, the words that God has promised to his family, these words of rest and reconciliation, a place of respite. I will make you the father of a great nation and you shall be a blessing to all to all people. And so Joseph in that moment, in that moment remembers the lessons learned at his father's knee. As he sat on his grandfather's lap, as he still heard the stories of great grandfather Abraham. What an impetus. This place is on parents. So on the one hand, we see how because Israel is unable to deal with the difficult intrafamiliar conflict that is experienced in, life, in his family because he chooses not to say anything, because he chooses not to give voice to Joseph's dreams, the young man is sold. But he didn't get everything wrong. He must have done something right. You see, us parents, us parents, we represent the inner voices that our children hear. We are central in framing and forging their inner dialogue. And the inner dialogue that Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob have bestowed, bestowed upon Joseph is one that says you must you must forego the pleasure of instant gratification for the divine design and the dream that God has for you. And what dream is this? Well, the dream is rest. And perhaps that's why at the end of the story in verse 40, in chapter 46, as Joseph is revealed in full power and majesty, as he sends a delegation back, to bring his father home. His father is reticent. He is struggling because he too knows the promise that God has, the promise of a land and of rest. So he will go, but before he leaves, he says, I will go see my son before I die. He knows that his ultimate destiny isn't Egypt, that the fulfillment of the design and the dream that God has for his family is rest. And so he goes, he goes to the same place where his father offered sacrifice. And there God says, go on to Egypt and see your son. And I love that, that final story in the Joseph cycle as a family is brought back together, learning about the vicissitudes that life may 
present. I love it because in the end, in the end it's about people from a different background with different dif with differences, with different agendas to be sure, finding unity in the ideal of rest. So I just want you to remember two things. Number one, when it comes to your family, don't forgo conflict for the sake of comfort. Sometimes things need to be said. Sometimes conflict is the way in which the divine design and the dreams that God has for you find a way forth. And the second one, remember that you will form and forge the inner voices, the inner dialogue that your children have. And so as a parent, may, may you bestow an inner dialogue to your children that speaks of rest and fulfillment of God's ultimate dreams for their life. Joey, let's talk about these families that are messed up, man. I am so happy that I have my own family because, <laughs> Lord have mercy, these families have some issues. They do, but it actually encourages me because if these families of destiny had so many issues and God was still able to work through them and do incredible things and still bring some kind of reconciliation, healing, there's hope for any family. Yeah, I mean, I'm sure I'm never going to approach a Thanksgiving disagreement the same way at least at least i never got sold into slavery so i think so we're good in our in our thanksgiving disagreements yeah as bad as uh sibling rivalries may get at least none of us try to kill each other or throw each other in the well right right at <laughs> least on purpose now we now when it comes to when it comes to sports we we did we did get pretty physical but never throw each other into a well so yeah. there's that yeah, with the sibling rivalry between my sister and I were a little bit different because, you know, boy and girl, mm -hmm. it's a little bit different. She's older. She was always stronger than me, so <laughs> I never challenged her in, the, in that arena. Um, so it was it was it was more of um, me just trying to exert that um, I could be independent, that I was mm -hmm. not dependent on her because she cared for me a lot and she she watched out for me. So there was a little bit of bucking there, but. Yeah, I mean, I'm grateful for the family that God gave me. Yeah, yeah, me too. Joey, why why do you think it is that when it comes to siblings, um, I I can remember my brother and I having these these battles. Mm -hmm. And I mean, we loved each other and we had the same passion. In our case it was it was soccer. But I remember one time, um, he 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 was just dominating the game, and so I um, I got upset and I, I, I came and, and tackled him in a way that, that was, that was a little bit, um, well, it was a little bit, uh, too hard. And so we got in, we, we pushed each other and shoved and, and people around us said, aren't those two brothers? And I found that the level of discord and, and clashing was was much much greater i mean mm -hmm. after that we were fine and, and we we still laugh about it but back yeah. then the, that level of bucking as you said was was greater with him than than with anyone else what is it about sibling rivalries um that kind of pull out the worst in us even as we obviously love each other and we care about each other and we we have a shared history et cetera, et cetera. yeah well, I mean, we're all broken people, right? Um, we all have rough edges and um, sharp, sharp needles pointing out of us. We have habits and ways of behaving that are part of the dysfunction of sin that's within mm. us. And so that's why anybody that we get close to after, after a while, their sharp edges brush up against us and make us uncomfortable and we want to push back on it. And siblings, you're always together. Mm. So those those are the people that you, your siblings are the ones that you first learn how to deal with conflict with. Actually, I remember reading a, a, about how 
God gave us siblings so that we can learn how to relate to mm. other people, right? So our siblings teach us how to relate to peers because it's different. A parent relationship, parent-child relationship is different than a peer relationship. And so siblings are the first peers that we get into conflict with, that we encounter these sharp edges and that force us to realize that we are not the center of the universe and it hurts and it's uncomfortable. And that's why I love what you said that, you know, conflict avoiding conflict is not really the goal because conflict is inevitable, right? It's actually embracing the conflict and working through that, that our children and we learn how to relate with people who are different mm -hmm. than us. And, and so th this week, our lesson talks about this idea, right, of rest in family dynamics. And yeah. as I read it this week, I said, whoever wrote the lesson this quarterly could have picked a better family. Yeah. Um, how is it that amidst all the conflict, mm. um, these people uh, find rest? Because that's ultimately what happens, right? Mm -hmm. If you if you read the the culmination of the story, uh, they're given the land of Goshen and they're all at rest in the end. But it takes so much conflict and so much angst and so much pain. And um, is there a a mechanism or a method by which even when we are embroiled in conflict, particularly intrafamiliar conflict, which is much more difficult to, to navigate through because, as you said, we, there's this closeness. Mm -hmm. um, is there a way to keep our eye on the ultimate goal, which is rest? Mm. Yeah, how do we work through conflict in a way that results in rest mm -hmm. rather than just more conflict and right. more conflict? Yeah, that's a good question. I mean, one thing encouraging from this story is as dysfunctional as they were, like you pointed out, they eventually come to a point of reconciliation, which I never thought until you you were talking, I never realized. I always thought the whole goal of, of Joseph going to Egypt was so that he could save his family from famine. You know, that God sent him, you know, even God worked with even the brothers' bad decisions to create a pathway for the deliverance of the people mm -hmm. of God. And I'm sure that was part of it. Right. But also, like you were pointing out, this idea that that what, what happened actually resulted in the reconciliation of the entire family. Mm -hmm. Like God created a context for them to be able to have reconciliation and to be rejoined again. And that's that's powerful. And part of that mechanism as terrible as as how it came about was was a little bit of separation yeah. right there was there was some time that they had to spend away from each other and grow each grow up in their own way i mean the growth that judah for example it wasn't just joseph who grew right. up um it was also judah the growth that judah had during that time enabled him so that when they met again to be the one who stands up for benjamin which is mm -hmm. He would never would have done for right. Joseph, right? So that 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 growth that happened away from each other, maybe that's sometimes necessary. That sometimes distance is necessary in order for individuals to grow. I I think that's so true. So think about, and I'm getting excited about that because I it, it really forces us to do what we try to do here every week, which is look at these stories that we've learned and we've read since we were kids and just put a new twist on them. So if you're like me, you've read the story of Joseph and you said, man, Joseph was a punk when he was growing up. He had this coat of many colors and he came and he said, look at my awesome coat. And by the way, let me tell you a dream. And people said, nobody wants to hear your dream, yeah. Joseph. And he's like, well, okay, but I'm still gonna tell you my dream. And let me tell you another dream I had. <laughs> and I used to think that that just smacked of immaturity. Yeah. And it might have been that the way in which the delivery of the dream and the way that Joseph shared that dream mm -hmm. was not the appropriate one. But the dream doesn't change. Yeah. In the end, as you're mentioning, Judah buys into the dream, mm -hmm. not because he bows down before Joseph, but because he puts the needs of Benjamin before his own mm -hmm. needs. And in that way, he kind of is uplifting Benjamin at his own peril. Yeah. And so I think that the dream remains the same because after all, it's a God-breathed and a God-given dream. Yeah. 
Um, I think that what changes is the way in which the dream is shared and experienced, mm -hmm. which leads me to another question. Mm -hmm. How do we help our children, whether they're our kids' age, which are elementary school kids, or maybe uh, some of our viewers there have older kids, how do we help them convey the dreams that God has given and breathed into their life in a way in which it doesn't turn people off. Wow. Yeah, I mean, what could what advice could Jacob have given to Joseph so that he conveys it in a way that that Joseph doesn't turn off his brothers? Mm -hmm. I mean, part of me just wants to say to Joseph, read the room, man. <laughs> just like I mean, you already know your brothers are jealous of you. You already know that your father has treated you like the favorite. Now you're going to toss this dream in their yeah. face. Like, yes, God gave you this dream, but man, it makes them feel small. You know, the, the dream that God, why didn't God give it to Reuben? I mean, I mean, Reuben, as, as the firstborn child, I would have been like, how about me? I, I'm the yeah. first one. So, so that's part of what I want to say, but but I, so I do think there is some, some tutoring that Joseph could have gotten from, from Jacob. Maybe Jacob could have done a better job himself. Although Jacob wasn't always great at that either. Mm -hmm. I mean, the way that he treated Esau. And so maybe Jacob wasn't the best one to give that kind of advice. Because we see the sibling rivalry, mm -hmm. like you pointed out, throughout the history of that family. Right. right? It's, it's like a generational sin. Right over and over again, you see that in the mothers, like between Leah and Rachel, um, in the brothers, between Jacob and Esau, between Isaac and Ishmael, and now uh, Joseph and his his brothers. This is a, this is an ongoing problem, and yet eventually it comes to a reconciliation, mm -hmm. which which is beautiful. But it takes like several generations mm -hmm. to get there. So uh, you know, I I think part of it would be to be to be able to read the room, to be cognizant of the people and what they're going through so that you share it in a way that is not offensive to them. But on the other hand, like you were saying, this is a God-given dream, right? So yes, it may make other people feel like, where's my dream? But God gave him this dream. This is, this, this is the role that God set apart from him. He had to go through a lot to the accomplishment of that, but it is something that God gave to them. So maybe some advice to the brothers is also to, to not let Joseph's dream make them feel small. Mm. Because what we see is that eventually God has a dream for all of them mm -hmm. as well, right? God has a role for Judah. I mean, the Messiah comes through Judah's line, not through Joseph's line, right? So God has a role for them as well. Um, so just because Joseph has a dream doesn't mean that God doesn't mm -hmm. have a dream for them as well. So maybe some advice on both sides. I yeah, mean, that's no, well, that's I think I think you just hit it on the head. I think in the language that that the original uses is clear when it says Joseph spoke. It's not that he had a choice about it. Mm -hmm. It's the same kind of construction that that is used when you have the prophet saying, "Oh, this is not going to go well. I know that this message I'm about to give." Uh, Hamus was is 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 one that uses this construction a lot. I know that it's it's not going to go over well, but I have to say it. It's just burning inside me, and I can't do anything other than than uh, speak it out into the world. But I think I think what what I love about the point that you're sharing is first and foremost there's this there's this generational history, this familiar history. Mm -hmm. Uh, that is checkered. And the problem, I think, with these familial curses is we kind of continue living out the same stories because yeah. this is the only reality we know. And so it doesn't shock me, as you were mentioning, um, that Israel looks over and even after he has his new name, he says, well, yeah, but I remember what it was like to, to be Jacob and struggle with my brother. Mm -hmm. And so this is what he knows and so maybe he he just he doesn't have the framework or the mm. frame of reference to speak something new but he does know that god is a god who as you were mentioning uh gives dreams to us all and so 
I remember um, my brother, uh, who was I can't I, he he probably isn't watching, and I hope he's not watching because I'm going to say something that I would never otherwise admit. Um, my brother is live the best soccer player I've ever seen. Mm. Um, and so uh, when when it was time for both of us to to move on to college, I had a couple uh, letters of intent. He got everyone interested. Mm. Um, and so his big dream was was to take those skills and and be a professional. Um, I knew that my abilities were never gonna take me there. Mm. And so, at some point, I said, well, that's your dream, mm. and it's amazing. Well, now I have to go find my dream. Yeah. And I think when it comes to us sharing our God-given, God-breathed gifts and this, these ideas of divine design with other people, I think that we create a restful environment mm. when we allow those uh, dreams to be shared without any sense of shame or, or guilt or conflict mm. and where we instill an environment that is saying we are going to support your dream even if we are simply bit players in that dream mm. but we also believe that when it comes time for us to chase our own dream you're you're going to be supportive as well oh, i love that you know, and I think that's part of the journey of childhood. Um, growing up with your sibling, at first you have shared interests. You're, you're it, it's almost like you're two people competing to be the same person, mm -hmm. and who's going to be a better version of that person. But as you grow up, you realize, you know, I can be my own person. I can be the person that God made me to be with my talents and abilities and dreams that are separate and different than yours. So when we are able to see that, that's when we can celebrate and not see that other person as a competition, mm. someone I have to compete with, but someone that whose successes and dreams and that I can also celebrate mm. because they're not, their successes do, do not diminish mine, right? And mine do not diminish theirs. We're just, we're our, on our own path and God has a dream for mm -hmm. all of us. And maybe as parents, the earlier that we can instill that into our children, um, the better, the earlier we can help them realize that they are not, as siblings, they're not in competition with one another, but that they are they are there to support, like you said, each other's dreams and to celebrate when they receive mm. their successes. Well, you mentioned parenting, and I think there's a lot when it comes to the impetus that parents have in creating spaces that are restful, mm. that are a space that is safe for our children. Um, I realized how we as parents get to frame our inner child's monologue mm. um, because uh, because last week my eldest was uh, was saying something and I responded. Um, he was arguing with me and kind of subconsciously I said, do you want to be arguing if, if Jesus comes back at this very moment? Is that where you want to be found? And then I had to stop myself. It's this moment where you see the words coming out and you're like, ah, pull them back. <laughs> because that's what my mom always used to tell me. Yeah. And so now it's, it's, it's like my mother's voice. It was my voice, but it was my mother's words. And I mean, there's, there's nothing wrong with that statement, mm -hmm. um, but it, it just shows how parents... Mm -hmm are able to frame their children's inner monologue. Mm -hmm. And I want my kids' inner monologue to be one of mutual support, as you're mentioning. Mm -hmm. I want my, my kids' inner monologue to be one where uh, they both accept that true rest in God is found when we allow ourselves to be led in this journey mm -hmm. where we're defining ourselves by what God's dreams for us are. Um, how do I, as a parent, how do we as parents, how do our viewers as parents frame inner dialogues for our children mm. that are healthy um, and that, that ultimately allow them to pursue uh, God's dreams and designs for their lives? You know, there's a phrase that uh, has kind of become my mantra as I've thought about leadership, which is who you are is more important than what you do. Mm -hmm as as a leader and i think the same is true of parenting who we are as parents 
um, is more important than anything that any single thing that we do, because eventually who we are will come out in what we do. And like, like you were talking about this power of generational curses or generational sins, I think part of it is if we don't want to feed those, pass on those generational sins and my monologues to to our children, we also have to be aware of them ourselves, right? That we have to take the time to examine. I remember as a part of our seminary education, I don't know if you had to do this, um, they, they made us... Um, they made us do a genogram, just kind of go through the history of the family and then just mark out like key events and to kind of be able to trace those generational um, habits and characteristics that have gone through each generation. And it was quite eye-opening because I realized, man, I do this and this and this and this, some of them great, some of them not so great because it has been in my family for more than one generation. And so at that point, I had to make a conscious decision. What, Which one of these traits do I want to really pass on to my children? And so I guess part of that step would be aware, being aware of some of those things, um, like you became aware of the, the voice that your, your mother is speaking through you. Uh, be aware of those things and make a conscious decision. This I don't want to pass on to my children. This is not a history I want them to have. And so that can be one step is just becoming aware of, of those, those mm. voices or those messages that we no longer want to share and t- with the next generation. And the pressure of parenting is, is a lot. I know as, as new parents, um, we, we tried with, with our eldest to do everything perfectly. And we realized, <laughs> as most first-time parents uh, do at some point, that it's impossible to get everything right. Yeah. And so for Linda and, and me, uh, the, ma- the mantra has become, um, we're going to make mistakes. We just want them to be different mistakes. Mm. We don't want to make the same mistakes that were made with us. Mm. Um, we, we know we're going to make mistakes, but let's let's be yeah. intentional in, in making sure that those are different type of mistakes. And I think that uh, our, as we repeat that mantra, we, we do so with a default position that w- we want to create for our children mm. in spite of all the dysfunction that is going to occur in our family, because like any other family, and I know you wouldn't believe this, but the Mendezes are dysfunctional. We're mm-hmm. a dysfunctional family because as you were mentioning, we are a family that has been broken by sin. Mm-hmm. But in spite of all of that, as we as we pray uh, for God to give us wisdom, as we pray for grace when we make mistakes, we also want to ensure that the environment that we create for our children and for our family is a restful environment. Yeah. And that means making some very intentional decisions about forging boundaries. Yeah. I think that's the beauty, uh, by the way, of the Joseph story, because it's a story where you don't have kind of this almost mushy experience, a Hollywood version of, oh, everything's forgiven. We're going to come together. There is still uh, at the end of the story, quite a bit of mistrust. And that mistrust stems from the need to create boundaries. And so I, I am a big, firm proponent of boundaries um, and, and testing each other and seeing what is okay and what is not okay, much in the same way that Joseph does with his brothers. Because I think that the ultimate goal is not perfection, it's restfulness. It's to create an environment, an environment that is safe and restful for our kids. Yeah, I agree with you. I, when Sarah and I... Uh, first became parents, and we realized how incredibly hard it was. You know, before you become parents, you're like, I, I don't know why those parents do that. I wouldn't do that. <laughs> and then you become a parent, yeah. and you realize, oh my goodness, yeah. this is not easy. Yeah. At that point, we made a decision: we will not judge other parents ever again mm-hmm. for anything they do. If they survive, if their kids survive, more power to them. Uh, parenting is incredibly hard. Um, it's the hardest, most rewarding thing that we'll ever do, right? Um, so yeah, we're going to all make mistakes. We're going to all speak messages into our children's lives that we wish we hadn't. Um, but I, I love what you had said at the beginning, this idea of embracing conflict and embracing differences. I think just holding on to the fact that we are all broken people and that we all make mistakes and being willing to talk about it 
is huge because we are going to all make mistakes. There's no perfect families out there. But if we're willing to address that and say to our kids, you know, I'm not a perfect parent. I make mistakes. I, I said the wrong things. I'm sorry. I think that's huge. If we can get to the place where we can we can address the brokenness within the family with each other, that that's that's I think that's that's where power comes. So I love that. I love the idea that we embrace the differences and we embrace the conflict and we don't let those hidden conflicts continue to wreak havoc on our lives. That is so well said. Um, Joey, we're almost out of time. Uh, we archive every single one of these conversations. Uh, I have a nine-year-old and a three-year-old, and I know they're not watching this particular conversation because it might be too heady. Uh, but when they tr when they swap out Veggie Tales for for seeing what Dad used to do when he had m not as much gray hair, I just want to say something. Mm -hmm. Kai, Micah, Dad made mistakes. But Dad loved you, mm, yeah. um, and I'm sure I'm sure you feel the same yeah. way about Becca and Millie. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Becca and Millie, I love you so much. I'm sorry for the broken messages <laughs> that I speak into your lives daily, but I hope that we can always talk about them. Will you pray us out, Joe? Yeah. Dear Heavenly Father, it's a difficult an overwhelming proposition at times to be called to be a parent, mm. to call to be called to raise children, to be children in broken families. It's hard. And yet we know that you are a God of grace. You are a God of reconciliation. You're a God of healing. So no matter what brokenness we have in our families, no matter what brokenness that we we've caused in our families, we rest in the knowledge that you, you can bring reconciliation mm -hmm. and healing to that brokenness. This is our prayer in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen and amen. And we'll see you next week, dear friends. Have a restful, restful rest of your Sabbath.